Amen, indeed. Good morning, church. He is risen. Oh, good. You guys know that part. Very good. Very good. It is so good to be with you on this Easter Sunday. It is always extra special to be with you on an Easter Sunday. And if you know why, it's because Easter Sunday is always Highlands Bible Church birthday. We are six years old today. And we have a picture. Yeah, we can clap for that. This was... This was launch day, Easter Sunday, 2016. We were at the gym in the Cedar Mountain School, and we also had, we have a close-up of who is leading worship that day as well, and he's also leading worship today. There is a much younger Chris Deming. Are, are those pleated slacks? They are fancy. We are, we are excited. God has been so kind and so gracious to Highlands Bible Church, and uh, of course, his grace through Jesus, the resurrected Lord that we celebrate today, but also with all of you, and just the people he has drawn not only to himself, but the people that he has drawn to Highlands Bible Church, and the people that he is still drawing to Highlands Bible Church, and we are so, so thankful for all of that, and we rejoice today in God's provision over the last six years. I know Lenny prayed, but I'm in need of prayer as well, so would you bow your heads with me one more time? Great and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the way that you sustain your church. You have promised that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we be found standing on the authority of your word and the centrality of the gospel and the supremacy of God in all things in the face of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, Easter Sunday, 2022, we made it. Last two years, last two Easter's, not been so much like this. Easter 2020, I preached to my iPhone and uh, a couple other people that were here. Easter 2021, the world decided to get COVID for the 14th time, right? And so I was preaching to my iPhone again and maybe 10 other people. But it is just such a joy to be gathered this morning and see a full church. And so we're excited about that. Our culture pauses today to mark Easter as a holiday in some way, shape, or form, right? You see it all over. You see the decorations, you see the Easter bunnies, the Easter egg hunts, you see all that stuff that our culture has done. For some of us, that means nothing. Some of us, it's just like, okay, it's, it's Easter. You know, I, I might have a couple of those peeps and eat some Christmas ham. That's about it. I don't, I don't really understand, right? Maybe you don't understand what Easter means. It is my hope and prayer that you will understand more after today. And for others, Easter brings many things. It means getting together with family, eating way too much food. It means Easter lasagna, Easter lasagna. I'm just going to think about that for a minute. Eating way too much candy, dressing up. Words come to mind when we think of Easter. We think of spring, maybe. We think of Jesus. We think of resurrection. Maybe we think of the word hope. Hope is a good word. So many of us are looking for hope these days. In a biblical, a biblical worldview, hope is not a wish. Like, I hope I get a pony or something like that. 
In a biblical worldview, hope is a rock-solid belief based on biblical facts. And they are the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have a hope too, and I hope again that you will see today from God's word two things, two truths that we can pull of what the resurrection proves and then what that means for us. What is our response? And we are going to be in the book of Acts. If you want to head there, Len already read it for us. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for visiting today. I've already talked to some of you. I hope to talk to all of you who are visiting. Thank you. What a great and glorious day it is to be worshiping together. What we do is we preach what's called expositionally, which means that we expose the meaning of the text, which means that hopefully the point of my sermon should be the point of the passage, right? The authors did intend a meaning. There is truth in the word of God. They intended a meaning. It's the Holy Spirit's job to apply that meaning to our hearts. It's my job through study and the power of the Holy Spirit to dig that out and to hopefully organize it in a clear and compelling way and hopefully the Holy Spirit lights it on fire so that we can understand and grow and maybe create faith for the first time today. You are not going to hear me stand up here and say five ways to have a happier Monday and then use 7,000 verses to back that up somehow, all out of context from all out of the Bible. Although you might have a happier Monday based upon what we're doing today. That's not the goal. That's what's called eisegesis. I'm reading into the text, and I want to find a way to make it say that. We come to the text. The text says something, and it's our job to know that, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to then show us that in our lives. That is my prayer for today. Usually we've been going through the book of Matthew. I was so close to nailing that resurrection passage. We were one week off from Palm Sunday, and, you know, just, it's my bad. I take full responsibility. I, my head was down. We're just trucking along, and I just thought there's no way possible we're going to be even close. And then I missed it by that much. But we're thankful. We're thankful that we, so we're going to divert from Matthew today and look at the book of Acts you might be surprised to learn that the resurrection is not just mentioned in the Gospels. It's all over the Bible. You can turn to Acts 2 again, and we're going to find it there. I'm going to be looking at the book of Acts, and just to get some context, the Bible split up into two Testaments, right? Old Testament, right? And New Testament. Many of us are not that familiar with the Old Testament. We think the Old Testament is long and scary and there's weird things in there like Leviticus and God has an anger problem and he's really mad. And then we get to the New Testament and we like that God much better. He's Jesus. He's got cool 80s hair. He loves everybody. All of that. But there, you can't separate those two things. The Old Testament establishes God as creator, establishes God as king, and it establishes Israel as his people. And it establishes that through Israel, the Messiah will come. Israel does a few things. They were God's presence to the nations. They deal out judgments to God's enemies, the Canaanites in the Holy War. They were supposed to model faithfulness to God. But much like us all, they didn't model faithfulness to God. They failed in that faithfulness. But most importantly, God did not fail in the faithfulness of his covenant. Even though that they failed, God's covenant, not one word, Joshua says, of the promises of God failed. And that was seen in, the, in, in Jesus, the Messiah who has come through the line of Israel. The New Testament reveals to us that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Hopefully that is not going to be a surprise to you that we are talking a lot about Jesus Christ today. On Easter, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Jesus is the main point of the Bible. Everything points to Jesus. He's the one who comes to seek and save the lost, and all of humanity are the lost. And as we jump into chapter 2 of Acts, the death and the resurrection of Jesus has already happened, probably a few weeks prior. These events have had a massive significance, of course, on historical Orthodox Christianity, right? And just to pause there, I feel like I'm setting this up a lot, but I, I kind of need to, right? Because we're jumping into a new book. We talk about historical Orthodox Christianity. That means we didn't make this up. That means that it's here. And that there's a tradition that has been handed down since the apostles, through the church fathers, through the early church, and all the way up to today. That's historic Orthodox Christianity. They believed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ since they started. And that's what we preach. We preach the historic gospel. So hopefully I can dig out a few points for us. Again, two things that the resurrection proves and what that means for us. Let's hear again the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 2. Look again with me at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that he did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite, and foreknowledge, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Peter says to them, men of Israel, he says, listen up. This Jesus who was attested to you, was demonstrated to you, was proven to you to be God by God through how the signs and the wonders and the things and the miracles that he did right before your very eyes. They're all eyewitnesses of this. These things happened mere weeks ago. They remember Jesus was around for approximately three years when his ministry got started. He said, this Jesus you delivered up to evil men. He says, this Jesus you killed. How to win friends and influence people. This is the first sermon that Peter ever is preaching, and he's starting off confronting them with the truth. These are the facts of the crucifixion. The, Jesus, the Jewish authorities rather hated Jesus. He was a threat to them. And they needed to get rid of him. But they couldn't get rid of him on their own. They needed help. So they got Rome. Rome, the occupying force of Israel at that time. Part of the kingdom of Rome. The empire of Rome. They got Rome to co-sign on this execution. They trumped up charges. They used the evil, occupying Roman Empire to murder an innocent man. But look very closely at what Peter says here. He says, yes, you had him killed. You used evil men to do it. But guess what? It was part of the definite plan, the definite and predetermined plan of God. So which is it? I'm confused. Did you guys kill him, or, or was that God's plan? And the answer is yes. The answer is both. 
You did kill him, and you are responsible for killing him. But you were pawns in the hands of God for his plan. And he goes to scripture. He goes to the book of Psalms in 16, and he proclaims what David says. That gets their attention. Because there's no greater king in Israel than David. And so he goes right to David, and he says, you know, you know what David said. And he reads from, from Psalm 16. Again, this is an expositional sermon. This is, this is uh, Peter preaching Christ from all of Scripture. Psalm 16, starting at verse 11, says, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He says, you remember David, right? You remember Jewish Sunday school and youth group, and we learned about him. The author of Acts he takes a, a different translation a little bit, a little bit of translation liberties from the Hebrew. You see there the difference between what's happening in the Greek and what's happening in the, in the uh, Hebrew. There's, there's no loss of meaning. There's clarity of meaning. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Messiah in the Psalms because David knew the plan of God. David knew what was, David knew the scriptures. The scriptures called for the Messiah to come. They prophesied the Messiah was going to come. And he said, guess what? The Messiah will not stay dead. He says he can't stay dead. It's impossible for him to stay dead. He says the pains, the pangs of death, they can't hold him. He says he won't see corruption. His body literally won't start to decay. He's not going to be in the grave that long. It's not going to happen. This is the Messiah. David preaches the resurrection of the Messiah from Psalm 16. David knows there's future hope in the Messiah. He says he will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead. Why? Because he knows his soul will be with God through faith in the Messiah. The Messiah, of course, will overcome death himself by being resurrected from the dead. And look at this. Don't miss these words. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Talk about the hope, the anchoring of hope in, in the Messiah. I'll be full of joy in your presence, he says. Death is a result of evil and sin. Rebellion against God. It was the promised penalty in the Garden of Eden. When they said, don't eat from this tree, God gave them one rule. It didn't matter the rule that he gave them. It didn't matter whether it was an apple or a pomegranate or whatever the heck else it was. He said, you have one rule. Don't eat from this tree. What he was saying in that is, do you trust me? This is your one rule. Do you trust me or are you going to go outside of where I have given you life to try to find life for yourself? And Satan, the original liar, said, you'll be like God. You'll know right and wrong. You don't need him. You decide. And original sin, the rebellion against God, and God promised death, and death came for all men. But David knows that. David knows that, that he will die, but he also knows through faith in the Messiah that his soul will not be abandoned. He knows that that resurrection will come of his own soul. Why? Because of the Messiah. He knows the Messiah will defeat death. He knows that he will not be in there long enough to decay. David has a biblical worldview and one that includes a massive understanding of what we call the sovereignty of God. 
particularly his sovereignty over death. And Peter, preaching in Acts 2, has a biblical worldview, one that places the blame squarely on the shoulders of those men, because they are responsible. They will be, and will be held responsible for crucifying the Lord, but also in that umbrella of sovereignty, he also says that you are all just part of the plan of God. An all-knowing God who took the evil that was lodged in your hearts that made you whip and beat and mock and spit on and torture and execute an innocent man. The evil that was in your hearts, he turned it, he harnessed it for the greatest good. According to his plan, the proof of that is the resurrection. The proof, proof of that is Jesus didn't stay dead as the scriptures foretell. So first, what does the resurrection prove? The resurrection proves that God is sovereign over evil. We've got to define terms. Sovereignty is a huge concept in biblical Christianity. It means that God as creator and king, right? If he's creator and he's king, like it's kind of on his job description, right? He is in charge then of all things in his creation. Everything. From the ant walking on the sidewalk to where you're going to live, to the day you're going to die. He is sovereign over all things, everything in his kingdom. He is also king right now. He is ruling and he is reigning right now. Governing, complete control. And I know what you're thinking. Cool story, but have you read the news? Have you seen what's going on right now? It doesn't really seem like there's anybody in charge, right? It doesn't really seem like there's a plan sometimes. It doesn't really seem like good is triumphing over evil. Right there, Pastor Mike, like have you even just looked at the news for a second? Like Russia and the Ukraine, NYC is kind of a dumpster fire right now. There's just crime everywhere, crazy social issues together. A little thing called COVID, does that ring a bell? Does that seem like God's in charge? It doesn't look like it. If he's in charge, he's doing a terrible job. I get it. It does look like things are spiraling out of control at times. But church, that doesn't mean they are actually spiraling out of control. Hear this. The presence of evil in God's creation doesn't prove that God isn't sovereign over it. The presence of evil in God's creation does not prove that God is not sovereign over it. The first and greatest piece of biblical evidence I can provide is just what Peter said. The resurrection proves that God is sovereign over evil. Because here's the thing, there never was a greater evil than what was done that day at Calvary. There never was, why? Because Jesus was perfect. Jesus was God. Jesus was completely innocent. And he was nailed to a cross on trumped-up charges. If anyone had a reason to rebel, speak up for himself, all of that, it was Jesus. But why? Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. I'm doing a plan here. I know I'm innocent. That's the point. I have to be innocent. That was the greatest evil that was committed ever, was nailing Jesus to a cross. But let's be clear. God is not the author of evil. He cannot be the author of evil because he is also completely 100% pure and good. He's the very definition of good. He's the very definition of pure. Evil is completely incompatible with God's nature. 
He is not the author of evil, but God uses evil for his good. It, it, it's, it's a tragic worldview to just say, well, we're just kind of, you know, little bags of carbon floating on some sort of rock in space and nothing means anything and there's nothing when we die and that's just a false hope for, for weak people. We all know that's not true. We can look outside and know that's not true. That's what Romans 1 tells us. But we have a God, church. We have a God that in his sovereignty and in his grace, evil doesn't have the last word. It cannot because he's sovereign over it. He's not the author of evil, but he stands indirectly behind evil, using it, harnessing it, turning it for his purposes and for his plan. That's his sovereignty. God uses evil for good, allowing it for his purposes. Case in point, the crucifixion. That's evidence number one, is the crucifixion. That's what he did. Men with evil overflowing in their hearts nailed Jesus to a cross and he let it happen to bring about the greatest good. If we don't have the cross, we don't have atonement for sin. It had to happen. Peter says, yeah, you killed him, but you played right into his plan. And this is all over the Bible. We can turn to other places. I think often of the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph hated by his brothers, Joseph sold into slavery, and then getting a raw deal in Egypt and being in prison then for years and years and years, and then being released from prison and then rising to power in Egypt and authority, right? But before that happened, what happened? There's, there's the little incident with Potiphar's wife, right? She got him thrown in prison for a long time. That's why he was there. And after all that and all the smoke clears, his brothers come to Egypt. And it's funny how, how Egypt was the only one, the only nation that had food. And everybody came to Egypt for food. And we saw why Joseph then was brought to Egypt in the first place, right? And at the end, their father dies and his brothers get nervous. And they said, listen, uh, Joseph, um, dad said before he died that you have to forgive us. We heard him say that. He didn't say that. But we heard him say that. And Joseph says something so profound. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He knows. He knows all the evil that was done for him, but he also knows and believes that God is sovereign over evil. The problem of evil is a huge one. It's one that stops many from embracing historic biblical Christianity. I have many conversations with people that say, I just, why can a good God let terrible things happen in this world? I get it. I understand it, especially when it happens to us. Right? Why does a good God let evil exist? The Bible says, among many other reasons, to bring good from it. Look at Jesus. Look at Joseph. We hate this. <laughs> we absolutely hate this because bad stuff's not supposed to happen to us. And when bad stuff happens to us and bad stuff happens to our families and when we go through trials and we go through all this stuff, it just says, we scream in our own selves, I don't deserve this. But that's not a biblical worldview. It's really not. Sin's here. 
evils here. Why it happens to one person or at the level it happens to another person and not another person, I can never give you the answer to. I can't. I have to trust God. I have to trust God in his sovereignty. It doesn't make sense to us, and it really shouldn't. We think God's job is just to make everything go smoothly in our lives, but that's not his job. That's actually not this world. You're confusing that with the next world. We hate not knowing why evil affects us, but a great preacher once said, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. When you can't understand why he's doing this, what is he doing, why am I going through this, when is it going to stop, what am I supposed to learn, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. What does that mean? It means God's good, and God is with us, and God has a plan, no matter what it looks like. And we have to cling to that with everything that we have. We can still trust God, even in the midst of evil, because of who God is. And that's more to the point of Easter. We can trust God because of who Jesus is. That's where Peter goes next. Back in Acts 2, look at verse 29. He continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. With that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, Peter then, do you see that? It's, it's exposition. He's preaching again right out of Psalm 16. He's saying it. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day you yourselves are seeing and hearing right before your eyes. This is Pentecost. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And let all those of the house of Israel then know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter continues, he says, Brothers, I tell you with confidence, David was talking about the Messiah. He was talking about the Messiah in the way that he will be dead and then be alive again. He said that a couple times. And he says, he can't be talking about himself. That was another popular interpretation at that time. He's talking about David because he had the promise that somebody would sit on his throne forever. So maybe they said David died. And he goes, guys, you know that's not true because he's dead and his tomb is right over there. Go look. It's still there in Israel. I didn't think David's actually in it, but in most things in Israel, they kind of think it's the right spot, so they just plant a flag there and say, this is David's tomb. It's still there. He says, David's dead. He's not talking about David. Go look. He's right there. That's his tomb. That's his grave. That's his coffin. He says, but David wasn't just a patriarch. He just wasn't a king. He, he was a prophet. He was a man who foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. Many times we don't think of David as a prophet, do we? We think of David as a king, which he was, the greatest king. But he was also a prophet, because why? He prophesied the Messiah right out of Psalm 16. Jesus, as God and man, died. He couldn't remain in the grave because he was God, because he was Messiah. It was impossible for death to hold him. He was resurrected from the dead by God the Father and then exalted to the position of power and prominence in the kingdom of God, ruling and reigning at his right hand in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Did David ascend to the heavens? Right? Don't miss that if you, if you at lunch in between jelly beans, right? You read chapter one of Acts, right? You'll see the ascension. Peter saying, hey, did, did David ascend? No, Jesus just ascended. Like Monday. We saw it. It just happened. David didn't ascend. David died. Jesus ascended. That's the point. Instead, what did, what did David say? Again, he uses scripture to back up what he's saying. He goes all the way back to Psalm 110. This is the greatest messianic psalm that there is. This is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other prophecy, any other psalm. And he says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And you're like, well, thanks, Pastor Mike. That doesn't mean anything to me. In context, in the Psalms, David is saying that the Lord, Yahweh, is talking to him as the king, and he's saying, rule and reign Israel in my authority. He says, subdue all of our enemies. But David also, much like Old Testament prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment, right? There's, that was true of Israel, but it's also going to be true of someone else. What else we have playing in the background here is that the Messiah was also known as the son of David. And so is, is it actually going to be, they were so hung up on the line of David. There has to be a son of David, that's what we call him. But, but then Jesus himself clears that up for us in Matthew. Chapter 22, again, quoted in all of the Gospels, but this one is Jesus himself. Matthew 22, 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. This is a good question. This is, such a, this is like a stumper. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Knowing he's the Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, duh. Jewish Sunday School 101 He's the son of David. And they said, okay, well, riddle me this. How is it that then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. Then if David calls him Lord, how is he a son? No one else was able to answer him a word. Not from that day, nor did anyone else dare to talk to him. <laughs> he shut them down. He says, you're so tripped up on the son of David. If he's the son of David, why did he call the Messiah Lord? Because the Lord is the Lord of all. The Lord is the Lord of David. The Lord is the one who will come and do the things of the Messiah. He says, it's not about David. It can't be. Even though the Messiah is called the son of David, he's really the Lord of David. David, an epic of a king as he was, only pointed to the greatest king, which is the Messiah, which is Jesus. And we have to think contextually here. There was, again, no one greater than David. So someone greater than David had to be the Messiah. If he's the Messiah, then guess what? He's God in the flesh. There's not many other things higher than David. And once again, what is the proof that the Messiah would be God in the flesh? What's the proof? Well, he's no longer dead. Because death couldn't keep him. Because of the resurrection. Look at verse 36 again in Acts chapter 2. And Peter like a good preacher, lands that plane there. He says, let all the house of Israel know. He says, I'm going to put this to rest once and for all, brothers. Know, therefore, for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He comes right out and he says, Jesus wasn't just a man. 
He wasn't just a spiritual king. He wasn't just a descendant of David. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the one who would rule and reign in the kingdom of God forever. And so number two, what does the resurrection prove? The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Sometimes you hear someone say that Jesus, allergies or cold or something, that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's wrong. It's totally wrong. All over the place. We've been going through Matthew. I think we just got to 65 sermons. We've been going through Matthew. How many times has Jesus claimed to be God in Matthew? Tons. Lots. What's one of the other greatest things that we know that he's got? Well, he does a lot of miracles. He does a lot of God stuff, right? What are the, one of the other things we know he's got? Well, he preaches with a lot of authority, doesn't he? He says, okay, you've heard it written that this was the law, but I say to you, and then I fulfill the law. Who can fulfill God's law except God himself? It's all over the Bible. John 1, 1, speaking directly of Jesus. I'll just take you on a little brief tour of some New Testament. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jehovah Witnesses scoured the earth to find manuscripts that can prove that it doesn't say was God. They say it was, he was a God. Okay, well, see, again, eisegesis. When you start with your belief, your presupposition that Jesus can't be God, then you're going to try to find Greek manuscripts that say that despite the fact that we have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of other Greek manuscripts that say he was God. He was theos. He was God in the flesh. Jesus didn't get himself killed because he ruffled feathers. He got himself killed because he claimed to be God. He acted in such a way that was unmistakable, forgiving sins, quoting the law of God and then revising it. New Testament books like Philippians tell us that he was in the form of God. Colossians calls him the image of the invisible God and the author of creation. That's God's stuff. Hebrews calls him the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We see Jesus ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father doing what? Upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. Jesus isn't God, church, this whole thing falls apart. He has to be God. I had a conversation with the Jehovah Witnesses when they came to my door, when they used to come to people's door. And I said, it, 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 let's just, let's close the Bibles, let's close the Greek. It, it, if Jesus is not God, I'm in a lot of trouble. Because there's no man that can forgive my sin. There just isn't. There's no man that can pay my debt to God. He has to be God. What proves that Jesus was God? I hope that there are many things, but to the point of Easter, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. This is, again, what the church has historically believed for over 2,000 years. Again, Peter calls them eyewitnesses. He's like, guys, they res he resurrected. You were there. You saw it. It happened. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, after Jesus was resurrected, he hung around for a month. And he was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people. Don't forget that in the context of the New Testament, right? That's what's going on. You're like, if you don't believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead, go ask Bob. He had lunch with him. He was there. He talked to him. These are eyewitness accounts. The church fathers unanimously upheld the deity of Jesus Christ. 
as evidenced by his resurrection. One church father, Clement of Rome, writing a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus, proved this, and he said, God made the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruits, right? By the raising of him from the dead. First fruits meaning, guess what? We will resurrect our, uh, one day as well. We sung about that. But Jesus was the first to resurrect from the dead. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is both Lord and Christ, and his resurrection proves that. Here's the hard part, though. If Jesus is God, then he has a right to tell us how to live our lives. And he judges us when we don't live like that. We hate that almost as much as God's sovereignty, don't we? Jesus, stay out of my business. If Jesus is God, then he's the one who holds the standard of good, the true, and the beautiful. If Jesus is God, then he can't be ignored. He demands a response. Look at verse 37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. The author of Acts tells us that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, meaning they were shook, meaning they knew they had to do something, meaning there was something that hit them. They, meaning the ones whom Peter were addressing, the men of Israel, excuse me. The men of Israel, his brothers, he says. He says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They were confronted with the truth. They said, whoa, what, what, what Peter's saying here, the truths of everything that Peter's saying, if this is true, it demands a response. I have to do something with this. I just can't, you can't ignore that. It means they're stopped dead in their tracks and they needed to do something. And it was pretty awesome. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> what do we do? Ah, we just feel this. What do I do? Somebody tell me what to do. And Peter answers them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent is a churchy word. Repent means to turn. It means you're headed down one direction and you're convicted and then you turn and you head towards the other direction, right? It's when we're engaged in sin. We're, if we're irritable with our spouse or something like that, we're sinning, right? Because God tells us, do not be irritable with one another. So that we're irritable. This is a hypothetical situation. Never happened in our home, of course. But if, this, if we're irritable, right? then I'm sinning and I'm, I need to turn from that and turn towards what God tells me to do. Be kind, be gracious. It's a literal change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. They were living one way and you need to live another way. There's an internal change and the proof of that inter internal change, Peter says, is baptism. He says that's what it looks like. That's why we practice adult believer baptism here. That's why it's called credo baptism because you state your belief in the gospel. We see these guys here stating, what do we do? We have to respond. I've been convicted. We'll state your belief in the gospel. He's not minimizing belief. He's saying that's the picture of belief. That's the obedience of belief. That's what you do. You get baptized. It's a symbol of your faith. We respond internally in repentance and outwardly in baptism as an evidence of what has happened inside of us. But what baptism 
What is baptism again, if not an outward expression of your inward faith? That's why Jesus himself, Mark 1.15, when he was asked this question, what do we do? He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He says, turn from your sin and turn to me in faith. Peter isn't saying baptism saves, but what baptism represents, faith saves. What do we obtain from this repentance of, and faith? Everything. We get life, we get forgiveness, we get the Holy Spirit, we get eternal life, we get a thousand other blessings in Christ. This is a promise, and he says, it's a guarantee for everyone who responds to the call of repentance. You'll receive the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. And Peter continues to preach the gospel to them, verse 40 and 41. And with many other words, is that like a preacher thing or what? Like the, once they get rolling, they just, I think the author of Acts was like, yeah, he said a lot of stuff after that, and I just, I couldn't. I cramped up, and I couldn't keep writing. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Instant megachurch. Boom. 3,000 souls. I hope I'm not using too many words. I hope I'm not using unnecessary words. And I hope the Holy Spirit is using these words to stir in your hearts what this is saying. And I hope I challenge you. And I hope you see that challenge from Peter. And he says, be saved from this crooked generation. We see it everywhere, don't we? One theologian said, the doctrine of original sin is one of those things that you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's everywhere. We see it. And it's getting darker and it's getting darker. But as that gets darker and darker, our light must get brighter and brighter, church. Because that's the answer to it. We see it everywhere. Things we know are crooked and twisted, and Jesus is calling us to himself. That day at Pentecost, 3,000 people responded and became Christians. They must have been baptizing all day. Peter argued the resurrection proves God is sovereign over evil. Peter argues that the resurrection proves Jesus is God, but that most of all, What's laid in this last section, the resurrection demands a response. You can't just ignore what happened. You can't just ignore history. You just can't ignore Peter saying it happened. You guys saw it. It fulfilled scripture. What do you do? You know you need to do something because the Holy Spirit just landed on you. You need to respond in repentance and faith. Church, there's a blood-soaked cross that stands in the middle of human history. Jesus existed. This is historically true. He was executed. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. The Bible puts the pieces together as to why. It was the sovereign plan of a good and gracious God who refused to let evil have the last word. The resurrection proves many truths. I hope you've seen two of them today. The resurrection proves God's sovereignty over evil. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. If these things are true, which of course you're going to think that I say they're true because the Bible says they're true, this changes everything. And this demands a response from us. And so what is your response? The Bible tells us to respond. Repentance and faith. 
It's not going to change. It's still a response. In many ways, you know, there's, there, there comes this kind of Easter pressure that kind of hangs over pastors, you know. It's just like, what are we going to do that's, that's big and, and new? And, you know, we're going to have 15 services and dancing monkeys and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's not us, by the way, so don't get worried. We're not going to have that. And, and I was saying to Mel this morning, she said, you're just going to preach the gospel like you always do. By his grace. That's what we do. We preach the gospel. And so it's extra special on this day, Easter, but it's still the gospel. It's still Jesus. It's still Christ crucified, resurrected, and coming again, and it's still repentance and faith. And there's two categories, right? If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, meaning this has happened, meaning you have had that moment, right? Sometimes it's not an actual moment, right? Some of us have this moment where we got knocked off our horse and there was a light and doves were flying by and we just suddenly, Jesus, and you know, we're a Christian, right? <laughs> that, that's like the minority of people. I just want to make everybody feel good. That, that's the minority of people. That wasn't me either, right? If you have that, praise the Lord, right? But the majority of people, kind of like, yeah, I'm hearing a sermon. Yeah, I've been coming to Highlands. Yeah, I'm hearing the truth preached. I'm talking to people. It's going. Truth is coming. Truth is coming. And then one day you wake up, kaboom. Yeah, I, I guess that's me. I guess I'm a Christian. I don't know when it happened, but I believe it that gradual response. So as Christians, church, guess what our response is to the truth? It's going to be really boring. Repentance and faith. You're going to say, well, I already did that. I threw a stick in the fire at VBS. Come on, I signed the card. I did everything. I sang Jesus, come to me, or whatever it is, at the youth retreat four times because we went four years in a row. Like, I, I got saved all the time. I don't have to get saved again. I'm not saying get saved again. Martin Luther said, the whole of Christian's life is repentance. Why? Because we're still going to sin. We're still, even though positionally we are justified, we are made holy, we have gone from an enemy of God to one of God's children, we're still going to sin. And we need to repent early and often all the time. That doesn't mean we're getting saved again. That doesn't mean the cross wasn't effective. That doesn't mean anything of our eternal status it means that we run into sin and our lives are why because we're bearing fruit and keeping with repentance that's what we're doing we're also persevering in what faith so christians church that's your response continue repenting continue trusting continue holding on to jesus christ if you are here today and you have not had that decision and hopefully you're feeling that a little bit now i need to do something the ball guy's making me feel uncomfortable it's the same response you need to repent you need to turn you need to say wow guess my life wasn't really what I thought it was I guess shocker I'm not the one in charge there's, there's somebody that's a king there's somebody that this is, this is his creation I'm living in his kingdom I need to repent and I need to believe for the first time and I hope and I pray that there are people in here that are doing that right now. And if you want to talk to me about that, that's my favorite thing to talk about. Be like David. Have that assurance that said, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. No matter what I see on the news, no matter what's happening with my health, no matter what's happening in my family. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoices and I dwell in hope.
hope is a good word. Father, we thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are thankful that we can freely gather in this country and stand here without fear and preach Christ and him crucified and risen and coming again. We thank you for this church and all of your goodness that you have shown to us over the last six years. Please, Lord, continue to sustain us, provide for us those things which, Lord, we are seeing you lead in a building, in an associate pastor, and many others. Lord, thank you so much for people that continue to come to faith and continue to come to Highlands. Keep us faithful, God. Keep us repenting. Keep us believing. Keep us trusting, and may our hearts dwell in hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.